Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Monday, December the 6th, 2021. It is currently 4.18 p.m. Central Time, so that means I'm extremely late. I I really wanted to be here about 3.30 p.m., so I've gotten here much later than I wanted to, which I hate because I'm very, like, I have to live by a schedule, and if anything gets delayed or pushed back or I'm running behind, I get extremely irritated and frustrated And, well, then I don't have clarity of thought. But I'm going to try to set aside that I'm running late. I'm going to try to set it. I needed to just address it because I wanted to be honest. So a little frustrated, but I'm going to set that aside. And we're going to use the time that we have right now to hopefully advance a very important conversation. Now, you know where I'm coming to you live from. I'm right here in the empty sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church located right here in Ovalo, Texas, where yesterday it was, what, 80 degrees? And right now outside, it's 49 degrees. Yes, that's not funny. No, that's, I, I'm not happy. It's supposed to get down to 30 degrees tonight, so I this will probably be the last live broadcast you ever hear. I will probably die tonight uh, because I know what you're saying. You, 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 you're, you're exaggerating. Oh, actually, I'm not. I, I, I don't like cold weather. I don't. That's why I live here in West Texas, right? And that's why you should move to West Texas, where typically it's warmer than it is right now. But that's what's going on. That's the setting. But I am stressing that I'm coming to you from inside a church because I've asked a very important question. If you were with us, it wasn't labeled part one, I know now this is labeled part two, but if you were with us for the first live broadcast where we discussed this topic, I asked a very important question. How should Christians live in basically a post-Christian world? When I'm sitting here inside a church, when, when, when Christians, they come into this church, obviously to hear the word of God preached, to hear the word of God taught, sing, pray, participate in in, uh, the Lord's Supper or baptism, those types of things. That's why they arrive at church, to be equipped as saints, so they will not be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, to be equipped for the work of ministry, all right? So they come to church. We know what is supposed to take place inside the church. Well, we should know what is supposed to take place inside the church. If you look at many churches, they obviously didn't get the memo, but that's a whole different podcast topic, okay? But at some point, the church service ends and they get up and they walk right out the door that I'm looking at and they go right back into the culture. How are they to interact with that cult- culture? What? How are they to live? And Christians throughout church history have taken very different approaches. Some have taken approach to be very much, okay, I'm going to go out that door, but I'm still going to be very isolated and withdrawn from the culture. And I'm not going to do this. And I'm not going to do this. And we're not going to watch this. And we're not going to dress this way. We're not, and they have a list of all these things we don't do because we're going to be different than the culture, right? And so they tend to be I take a, a more of an isolationist, an, iso, an isolationist approach. They kind of withdraw. Others are far more engaging in culture, and some may say that they are far more accepting of culture and may participate in things that others would say are sinful or questionable. Some would say that some Christians are being worldly. Others will say you're being legalistic. The point is, there are lots. There, there has been a 
constant division and debate within the body of Christ throughout church history and exactly how we are to live our lives in the midst of culture. And especially that question becomes very important when the culture becomes more and more opposed. Uh, they, they stand in opposition to Christianity. And in our culture today, we live in a post-Christian culture. So how should we conduct ourselves? Well, we, are, we have talked about in the past the St. Benedict option. All right. Now, that is one option that is very famous. It, it comes from a book. In fact, let me, I, I added it to the Theology Central Book Club. Give me one, uh, give me one second here. I'm going to pull the book up. I didn't even think about having um, the, the book open. You see here, uh, if I can remember it, uh, it should show up just a second here. All right, here we go. Yes. Uh, Or it's called the Benedict Option, all right? The Benedict Option. And it's a, basically, it's a a book that offers a strategy for Christians living in a post-Christian society, all right? That's basically what it it calls for. And we've we've talked about the book. It's a part of the Theology Central Book Club. If you've already signed up for Theology Central Book Club, you probably got a notification that it was added. Now, remember, the Theology Central Book Club is absolutely free. You don't have to buy anything. It just is a very easy way for me to communicate to you that, hey, I'm looking at this book or, hey, I'm reading this book. doesn't mean I agree with everything in a book. It just tells you that I'm I'm looking at this book, thinking about this book, or I think it could be interesting, not because I may agree with everything, just because I want you at least to know about it. Or maybe it's a book that's getting a lot of discussion, and I want you to be aware that it exists. You get the notification. You can take a look at it. If you want to buy it, great. If you want, if you if you have an opinion on it, then you can always email me at newsif at yahoo.com. It's just another way to communicate with you when I don't have the ability to turn on this microphone. All right. So we've talked about the Benedict option. We've talked about it. We've 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 not done. I wanted to do more extensive study on it, and maybe at some point we will return to it. But it's a it's an option. It is a strategy. It is a way of living in a post-Christian world. You can look at it and say you agree or disagree, but it's an option. Well, what's interesting is Issues ETC, Issues Etc., which is a Christian radio program that comes from a Lutheran theological perspective. They have started a series called the St. Peter Option. Now, in part one, what we did, I know it it wasn't technically part one, but in the first broadcast we did on this, we started listening to this segment on issues, etc. And they sort of started talking about the Benedict option, its strengths, its weaknesses. Then they went to a break. We stopped our live broadcast and they went to a break. Now we're going to pick back up and our review of this episode. And I and just so that if you would like to hear both uh, episodes from issues, etc. on this on the St. Peter option, Go to theologycentral.net. I have them embedded right there, or you can subscribe to the Issues ETC podcast wherever you get your podcast, and then you can look for the Benedict Option. If you have the Edify Christian Podcast app, Issues ETC is available on that app as well. Of course, our podcast is too. So however you want to find it, if you can't find it, let me know. You should listen to everything they have to say. I'm just trying to figure out what is the... St. Peter option as opposed to the Benedict option 
and as opposed to all the other options that have been tried throughout church history. And you and I really challenge you to really think about what is your view? How do you think a Christian should live in light of a post-Christian culture? Have I received a lot of emails with people giving their perspectives? Yep, hopefully this will spark a a bigger discussion. Sometimes I think a, a, a podcast episode is going to spark a lot of conversation, a lot of discussion, and it is met with resounding silence. Then sometimes I will record a podcast episode thinking no one's going to care, and I'll get 50 emails. And I'm like, wait, what just happened? Wait, wait. Uh, and so I, I'm horrible at knowing what you want to talk about or what you want to discuss. Well, here's, what, here's my strategy. I have no clue what people actually want to hear. So do as many episodes at, that, that I humanly can, and sooner or later, I'll find something that you want to talk about. That's, that's, that's my strategy, right? Clearly, I'm not good at going, wait, this is going to be the topic because I'm usually wrong. But if I keep doing enough episodes sooner or later, look, if I cover every topic that has ever been discussed in the history of the world, there's got to be at least one of them you're interested in. But no, I think this is a very important one. And well, we're going to just jump back into Issues ETC. And this is their second segment on the St. Peter option. And uh, I, I don't know how far they go before they go to another break. When they go to the break, we'll have to stop because I, I don't have, then I'll have to try to sit there and fast forward through it. And it's not very professional. So we'll just stop with when they go to break. And then if we need to, we'll come back and do another episode tomorrow or not tomorrow, probably Wednesday or Thursday, but we will see. Are you ready? All right. How should a Christian live in the midst of a post-Christian culture? Now, the one thing I believe that, that everyone who has these conversations right now about, well, should we do this? Should we do this? I think everyone is missing the bigger question and to me, the greatest danger. I don't think Christians have a strategy right now and how to conduct and carry on in the midst of a post-Christian church. Everyone's worried about what to do with the post-Christian culture. I believe what's getting ready to happen and we're fast approaching it, is we're going to basically end up with a post-Christian church where the church has, has been so either politically hijacked or so abandoned biblical Christianity that Christians are going to be looking around going, I don't have a spiritual home. I don't have a church. Nobody wants to talk about that problem. Right now, everybody wants to talk about how do we handle the post-Christian culture? Now, we're going to listen to what they have to say about that, but I think we need at some point have we need someone to have to write a book about the option for dealing with a post-Christian church. I know you think that's hyperbolic. I know you think I'm exaggerating, but I really believe that is where we're headed and headed far faster than you want to believe. But let's listen to what they say we should do as it relates to culture. Here is the St. Peter option and well, you will. You will just jump in and we'll, we'll, it'll all make sense. All right, here we go. We're beginning a new series, The St. Peter Option, Living as Exiles in a Foreign Land with Pastor Peter Bender of the Concordia Catechetical Academy. Peter, if you would, as you promised, take us into 1 Peter chapter 1, where you say you find a baptismal doxology. Yeah, I'm going to, uh, we'll, we'll do some verse by verse looking at, but but today I just want to note that under this theme, Christian joy and hope under persecution and suffering, 
The epistle begins in verses 3 through 9 with a baptismal doxology, a baptismal song of praise. And I'm encouraging members of our congregation to recite it frequently, to commit it to memory, because it's a great antidote for the challenges and threats to the Christian faith today. Look at how it is. I'll just read it for you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, in that baptismal doxology, Todd, it is so uplifting. It mentions suffering and that we are tried like gold that is refined in fire, but that this suffering serves a godly purpose. Okay, I have to jump in here. First, he doesn't provide the historical proof that this is a baptismal doxology, something that I guess is to be read after a baptism. But I have to at least bring this up because it's kind of the elephant in the room. Now, remember, Issues ETC, this is a Lutheran radio program from a Lutheran theological perspective. And one of the things about Lutheranism, as a former Lutheran who at one point wanted to be a Lutheran pastor, all right, remember, in Lutheranism, they teach infant baptism. So I don't know, I don't remember, I don't, I can't, I don't believe this passage was read as a baptismal doxology in the Lutheran church, but let's say it is. Let's say there's, there's a Lutheran church that reads it after a baptism and say, let's say they, re- they read it after the baptism of a baby, of an infant, right? Which uh, Lutherans practice infant baptism, okay? Now, let's just say you read that. Well, immediately, I, I just, I'm going to throw this out there. Now, I know all of the possible answers that Lutherans give. I know all of the possible answers they give because I used to try to give these same answers when I was a Lutheran. At some point, I realized that I just don't think they work biblically, theologically, logically, and I and I think it's clearly can be shown realistically that it's just not accurate. But let's just look at this. First Peter chapter 3, verse 5, all right? Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We are kept by the power of God through faith. We are kept by the power of God through faith. Now, I will argue when you put that water on a, 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 an infant baby, that baby has no clue what's going on, does not have faith, does not exercise faith. There isn't any faith in the baby. 
So when you say that you're saved by salvation by faith and that we're kept by the power of God through faith, that baby doesn't have any. Now, I've heard all of the different explanations. Well, it's the faith of basically the people bringing the baby to be baptized, right? The godparents or the parents, whoever is bringing the baby to be baptized, it's something about their faith. Well, that just seems absolutely ridiculous because if that's the case, then everyone in the church can just pick a lost person and we can just have our faith somehow transferred to them and it'll be sufficient enough for them to be saved. Well, that we know that doesn't work. So there's nothing in the Bible about me, my faith having somehow have some power for someone else, whether it's a child or an adult. So that doesn't work. So then they try to argue, well, a baby can have faith. Look at John the Baptist. Look at what happened to John the Baptist. Wait a minute. If you look at what happened to John the Baptist when he was in the womb, you can't make that that one-time event now prescriptive for every child that's baptized. And first of all, John the Baptist when he left in the womb, it, he hadn't been baptized, all right? So they try to make a lie. See, when you baptize the baby, then the baby is given faith, right? So then, so so that baby now has faith. Well, I've watched, I, w- I used to teach the young people in the Lutheran church, right? I used to teach the teenagers, right? And I did different things with the teenagers. Trust me, they had all been baptized. Many of them were absolute, rejected God, atheist, agnostic, could care less. So what happened to the faith that they were given? So then I was told, well, you can give the baby faith when you baptize them, but then they can lose the faith. All right. It just becomes, the whole thing just falls absolutely apart. I just find it funny. This is a baptismal doxology talking about being kept by the power of God through faith. And you put water on little babies' heads that clearly have no faith. And then you try to claim that the baptism produces faith or puts faith in them. And then they grow up and you can clearly demonstrate, well, what happened to the faith? Well, then you say they can lose the faith. So then then you're not saved by faith. Oh, the whole thing just becomes a, a, a train wreck of epic proportion. So I just have to at least address that. I still want them to get to what's their, their way of supposedly living in a fallen world or in a not in a fallen world, in a post-Christian culture. I mean, obviously the Bible tells us how to live in a fallen world. I think in some ways, yeah. I think I think a lot of times we're like, we forget that we already live in a fallen world, but when the world gets really, really bad, then we're like, okay, now, now it's really bad, so now we need to know how to live. I think we've, we should have been asking, how do we live in a fallen world from the moment we're saved? I think that's one of the key elements of, of discipleship, but we, we won't go there. Now, there's some other things in this passage I'm going to give them the opportunity to talk about, but um, I just I just had to address that. I had to address it. I know it's not. Well, you know what? I, I think I think this is important. I think this is a very key to how do we live in a post Christian world. Well, if we're good, if one of our key elements of trying to live in a post Christian world is that we put water on the head of a baby, I think that that baby now is magically saved and has faith and is going to be able to grow up to live in that post-Christian world, I think that that's problematic because clearly the kid, I mean, then, then you have, you that baptism isn't sufficient enough because you're going to have to do this and this and this to try to ensure that the kid does have faith. So maybe, maybe there's a problem right there. I, I, I would have to flesh that out a little bit more, but okay, I, 
I'm just I'm still kind of trying to go. Which direction are they going to go here? What what are going to be the directions and how to live in a post Christian world? Like what what are the directions and why is it that we have to keep coming up with different options and how to do this? Because I think I just kind of stumbled on it, wasn't even thinking about it. it, it I was just kind of I, I kind of just misspoke. But now that I'm thinking about it, I, I think maybe I'm onto something. I think from the very moment we become Christians, when we exercise faith, right? When we when we say when we say I exercise faith, God grants us the faith that we then exercise. You, you get the idea, all right? That we can get to a whole discussion about that. But the point is, from the point the moment of our salvation, I think we need to be instructed and we need to learn. And how then do we live in a fallen world? Like it's not about whether the world is quote unquote, a Christian world or a post-Christian world, we need to know how to live in a fallen world from the very moment of salvation. And I don't know how much instructions we have been given. I think I think there's a lot of instructions we're given, but a lot of times it's just absolutely crazy. I mean, going back, I'm, I'm thinking about this now. When I was a brand new Christian as a teenager, what I was basically taught, this is how I needed to live in culture. Don't listen to secular music. Don't go to dances because dances were bad. Uh, don't do drugs, don't drink, and definitely whatever you do, avoid sex. That was kind of like, don't drink, don't dance, don't listen to rock and roll, and do not have sex. That was kind of like, that. that's what I need, that's, that was the, I don't know, I guess we'll call it the West Texas Southern Baptist option in the 1980s. That's kind of what was the... That was the direction, and I don't know if that was really very beneficial or helpful, but okay. So I guess I was given some kind of instruction. I just, I just don't know how much instruction we're really given and how to, uh, to move forward, but, but everyone keeps writing books about how to do it. Well, now here, here's the St. Peter option. Let's see if they articulate this or give us anything specific. For the preservation and strengthening of our faith, and there's not a shred of pessimism in that doxology whatsoever. And this runs throughout the epistle. The idea of Christian joy and hope under the persecution that we suffer for Christ's sake. The suffering that we suffer for believing what we believe as Christians. And that we actually are not to be afraid of this suffering. All right, now I got to stop again. Okay. Now look. When Peter wrote this to the individuals that he was writing to, they were suffering. They were suffering. But he's speaking as the suffering we endure for believing what we believe. Now, I I just, I have to, I got to raise my hand here. Okay, now, are you talking to Christians in America? Now, I know Christians in America, every time anything happens, we're being persecuted. <laughs> they, they constantly want to yell that we're being persecuted. Pretty much if anything happens, we're being persecuted, right? If a movie comes on Netflix that, that we think mocks Christianity, we're being persecuted. I, I, I think that we have to, I think maybe one of the things we need to do and living in a post-Christian world, I, I, I say, I think what I'm going to end up doing is I'm, I'm going to reject the Benedict option. I'm going to reject the St. Peter option. I'm going to reject all of the options. But I think one of the, I think a, a key element in trying to know how to live in a post-Christian world is maybe we need to get a proper definition of what persecution is and what it isn't. All right. 
if 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 the world makes a movie that mocks Christianity, that is blasphemous, that says Christians are stupid, that Jesus was whatever they want to claim that he was, that the Bible is not real, that's not persecution. That is simply someone not agreeing with the Christian message. That's not persecution. If a comedian does a comedy special and mocks Christianity and just rips it apart, that's not persecution. That's not persecution. That is someone mocking your faith. You may not like it, but that's not persecution. Now, if you go to a job interview and they say, are you a Christian? Yes, I'm sorry, we don't hire Christians. Okay, now, now we could talk a little bit. If you, if you get a knock on your door and they say, are you Christians? Yes, okay, we're here to, to uh, take your Bibles and we're gonna put you in prison. If you're sitting in church and they kick in the doors and say, uh, nope, no worship of God, you're, you're, you're gonna all be arrested. Okay, okay that's, that's different. Now, make it very clear if they're doing that to, all organizations, because they don't want a certain number of people meeting because of a pandemic. Now, you got to be careful. That is that Christian persecution, or is that maybe laws that you disagree with that are being equally applied to people of all different faiths and all different groups and all different situations? I, I, I just have to throw that out there because people say, see, that's what's happening right now. I just, I just think, look, if we're going to go to First Peter and say these people are suffering, I mean, come on. Now, there are, there are Christians in some parts of the world right now who are suffering, who are being persecuted, who are being beaten, who are being tortured, who are being jailed, who are being killed. All right? That is, the, I mean, being a Christian right now in China, probably not a good situation. Being a Christian here in West Texas, I mean, come on now. <laughs> come on now, okay? So I think, I think we, we don't want to scream persecution when there isn't persecution. I'm not saying if, Look, there's an issue happening in your area. Maybe something is going on. Maybe it's an attack upon religious freedom. By all means, you can take a stand up for against it. You can do what you can do using the legal system or whatever, you know, different avenues you have to address it. But just be careful before you start screaming persecution. All right. That just can, can we at least do that? I mean, we we we, we got to have we got to have some level-headedness about what it is and what it isn't, okay? So it's just interesting the way he's he's just speaking about, like, this is true of us as well. It, it, that's the way it's coming across, that we're being persecuted too. And I'm like, slow down. I, I, I don't, who are you, who, which, who is being persecuted? Like, let, let's identify that. Let's be honest. Let's be fair. I'm not saying that there's never any issues. I'm not, I'm not saying that there's never any issues. I've seen things happen and by all means, there's a time to draw that line and take a stand, right? And there can be situations where maybe someone is, would reach the level of persecution. Or do you think we need to have a clear definition of what it is and what it isn't? And let's not claim it's happening until it clearly is. Because after a while, if you claim that it's happening every time anything happens, at some point, they basically... No one's going to take your, your concerns seriously because they say, well, that person thinks they're being persecuted if someone just rejects their invitation to church. And it's like, let, let's, let's at least be accurate here. All right, let's continue. We are called to endure it, but we're called to endure it with joy and with hope in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And this is where we talk about how his suffering served a purpose. So does the suffering 
of the Christian. Jesus' suffering was not simply something he had to get past in order to get to the resurrection. His suffering and death is the very cause of the resurrection. Because he suffered for our sin. Sin is what brought death into the world. Sin is the cause of all of the evils that we are currently suffering under as Christians. And so it is the death of Jesus whereby he atoned for sin, and the result of that is resurrection. I call this a baptismal doxology. You can see God the Father and God the Son in it. We are begotten again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's all baptismal language. And so the gift of faith in Christ as we're joined to his death and resurrection in our baptism becomes then the foundation for us to be able to live in this world on this side of the resurrection, on this side of the grave, rejoicing, if though now for a little while, if need be, we've been grieved by various trials. You'll notice that phrase, a little while. You know, that picks up on what Jesus told the disciples in the upper room in John's gospel. A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I said this to you, your, your heart is filled with sorrow. But when you see me, your sorrow will be turned to joy. And so he, he likens that in his epistle. He's picking up on Jesus' words there to that, that horrific suffering that they endured as they saw their Lord hanging upon the cross would be a paradigm for them to understand the suffering of their own life. Just as God the Father brought the greatest good out of the suffering and death of his son upon the cross, something which at that moment that they were going through caused them such grief and such sorrow. So through their suffering, God would bring about his great good of strengthening their faith, preserving their faith, and enabling them through their suffering and the enduring of persecution to bear witness to him whose very persecution and martyrdom brought about the world's salvation. So this is why we need to see the close proximity of Christian suffering and persecution to the proclamation of the gospel and the mission work to those who do not know Christ and who may very well be our enemies and those who hate us. So talk about the challenges, you say both contemporary challenges and underlying spiritual problems that Christians are being faced with. Today. Yeah, yeah, we're going to take up a lot of these issues in depth as we move forward in this series. But just to list a few, the paganism of radical environmentalism. You know, what is paganism? Ancient paganism worshipped the things of creation and made deities out of these things. And I think radical environmentalism challenges us to do exactly the same kind of thing. So you take God out of the equation, and then you begin to worship the created order, even though it... Okay, now i got to stop here. Okay, so we live in a post-culture, a post-Christian culture, and one of the first issues mentioned here is radical environmentalism. Now, I don't know, is radical environmentalism causing you major issues... And your Christian faith. I, I just want you to think about your Christian faith, trying to live out your Christian life in a post-Christian culture of all the challenges that you may face. Do you ever go, man, this radical environmentalism is absolutely destroying my Christian life. It is a source of difficulty, of trial, of persecution. I mean, have you... <laughs> okay, I'm trying not to laugh, but I mean, of all the things you first... Radical environmentalism? Is that, 
is that even anywhere in the top 15 of like a, a, you're living out your Christian life. You you leave the church, like I'm sitting here in the empty sanctuary. When my, when my people leave the church, I wonder when they're like, man, my pastor just doesn't understand the difficulties I have to face every day with this crazy pagan radical environmentalism. It is insane. It is destroying my Christian life. It is suffering. It is ho- so hard to take a stand against. I mean, is radical environmentalism really causing you as a Christian that much difficulty? I'm not here for you to say, well, wait a minute. It's causing problems in the economy because they want to they want to you know stop this or or do this and it's going to make fuel prices go up. It's going to make electric you know electricity go up. We can we can get into all of the policies of radical environmentalism and how it may impact culture, the economy, but those are all the cultural issues. Again, one of the major things, I think, as trying to know how to live in the Christian world, we have to realize that our focus is on our faith. Our focus is on our ministry. Our focus is on making sure what's more important to us is our faith. In fact, let's go to 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1, 7. He read it. He didn't spend a lot of time with it. Let's go back to it. I'm going to read this from a num- number of translations because I really want you to see what is emphasized here, okay? A number a number of translations. Here we go. 1 Peter 1, 7. The, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, speaking of trials, they have come to prove the genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. Your faith is of greater value than gold. One of the key elements of living in a post-Christian world is you have to constantly have in your mind that your faith is of more value than anything else. You value your faith, growing in that faith, your faith in God. That's what's most important. So I, radical environmentalism, it, it may impact the economy, it may impact your job, but what's most important to you is your faith. So how does radical environmentalism impact your faith? Are you telling me that radical, pagan radical environmentalism, let's say turning the environment into a God, is that, is that really a danger in your church? Have you had people abandon their Christian faith to worship Mother Nature? Have you seen a, a major problem in your church of people saying, you know what, this whole God thing, I'm, I'm not, I, I, I've decided to reject God the Father and I'm embracing Mother Earth. Have you, is that a major issue in your church? Like, I, <laughs> I, I think of all the heresies running through the Christian church, radical environmentalism doesn't even show up. Of all the issues that I've never had someone call me saying, hey, pastor, I am really, really, really struggling with uh, pagan radical environmentalism. I, I just want you to know I am really struggling with this. I, I okay, I'm, I'm just, I'm just a little baffled. I'm a little baffled by this one. I, I have to be honest with. You. Of all, I thought they, I thought, I mean, there's a lot of things I thought they would mention. That right there, there's a lot of things, but I just think we have to have the mindset that my faith is more value than more valuable than actual gold. It's your faith is more important than anything. I don't know if we truly see our faith as being the most important thing, because if we did, we would do everything we can to strengthen it, to increase it, to grow. In other words, 
If you think your physical health is of utmost importance, you wake up at 5 a.m. to go to the CrossFit gym. I use that illustration because I always drive by the CrossFit gym on the way here. You're there working out. You're not eating this. You're not eating that. Well, if if you believe faith is more valuable than gold, then you're going to be more worried about you growing in faith than you advancing in your career. You're going to be more worried about your faith than how much than the money you make. But I, I think I think there's our, our first problem. We live in a culture that doesn't value your faith, and the church has returned the favor by us not valuing our faith. I mean, I, I often look at all the church activities, the fun, the food, the entertainment, and so much of it is not designed to strengthen your faith, increase your faith, help you grow in the faith. It's designed to entertain you and feed your face. I, I mean, right? So, I mean, I know that that's going to make some people mad, but I, 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 I mean, if we're going to really talk about how to live in a post-Christian culture, we need to get down to some real issues, not pagan radical environmentalism. This is just, it's just really weird that this is one, but let, let's see what he has to say about this. Is not called as mother nature and so forth. Woke culture, you know, the, the social Marxism of the woke culture, where there are the oppressed and the oppressors. You have out of this the cancel culture so that for us as Christians, you know. Okay, so woke culture, that's something else we got to be. Now, please note this. <laughs> this really starts sounding, you know what this starts sounding like? Hey, how to live a Christian life in a world that is moving away from Republican conservative principles, okay? So, hey, hey, that radical environmentalism, well, that's over there. That's progressive liberals. And that woke culture, that's those progressive liberals. This seems to be more about how to live in a culture that is rejecting your political ideology. This doesn't seem to have anything to do about your faith. It, this is bizarre. And then cancel culture, let me make it very clear. I get, <laughs> okay. I, I, as soon as I hear Christians start whining about cancel culture, I literally want to just start throwing things, I literally. And, and you think I'm joking, I'm not, because Christians perfected cancel culture. It was Christians who were like, no, we want that movie banned. Don't show that movie. We want that video banned from MTV. We don't want that, that album to be sold in, in stores. We, we, we don't want that song on radio. We want this, I mean, for crying out loud, I've watched it happen over and over and over and over and over and over and over. Christians want, you know, we want to shut this down. We don't want this. We, we, it, Christians have been doing that kind of thing forever. So I just think Christians got mad when now someone wants to take that same principle and then up, uh, try to cancel us. And they're like, no, 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 no. We can cancel you, but you can't cancel us, which probably demonstrated that our whole approach to cultural issues was not biblical and was foolish to start off with because we were trying to cancel people. The Bible doesn't say go forth and cancel anyone. It's go forth and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, calling them to faith and repentance. That's what you're, that's what we're doing. I, oh man, this is bizarre. Everything it's talking about, this is political. So, hey, that radical environmentalism, that woke, that cancel culture, that's what you've got to, that's what you've got to figure out how to deal with. That's what you've got to figure out how to deal with. I can think of a million issues that are more pressing and dangerous to the average life of the average Christian than radical environmentalism, woke culture, 
our cancel culture. I can, I can think of a lot more things that are a lot more problematic to the Christian, like the political hijacking of the church that's coming from the right. But hey, hey, hey no, nobody, nobody wants to listen to, to what I have to say. All right, here we go. Anything that we believe and confess that is not politically correct is we have not the right to say it and we must be canceled. And we're discriminated against because of having certain views. Progressivism that finds its way into so much of American education. We get persecuted? We're not allowed to say it? I've been turning on this microphone for a very long time. And I've never had an issue. But guess what? Guess where I did have an issue? See, this is just hilarious to me. I've never had an issue with Spotify, Apple, Google Podcast, all the different. Po- the only place I've ever had a problem with is with YouTube. And it's just because of their algorithm, because I wasn't saying anything that I wasn't supposed to say, but they didn't like the title. And, and you can't even have an actual conversation with someone. So I've had a couple of problems with YouTube, which is insane. But you can let me tell you where I had uh, I got canceled and I wasn't allowed to speak. Christian radio, the, the very Christian radio that when I showed up to to possibly get our and I, I, a radio program, a 30 minute radio program that aired on Sunday mornings. It was like, OK, here's how it works. You give us money. We give you a 30 minute time slot. There you go. All right. Okay, what can I do? You can pretty much do anything you want. Okay, they didn't tell me I couldn't say this. They didn't give me no rules, nothing. Boom. Next thing you know, I'm getting thrown off the air. Why? Because I criticized local churches in the area for basically turning Easter into an absolute abomination because it was about Easter eggs and the Easter bunny and just everything other than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I get literally, while we were on the air, I got, they, they pulled the plug and that was the end. I got, I got kicked off the air for, for that. There, there was, there was no warning. There was nothing done, gone. You're finished. Get out of here. You're done. Well, wonderful. Thank you so very much for being, oh, wait, that's cancel culture. Wait, I wasn't allowed to say what I want to say. Give me a break. You think, you think Christian uh, websites and Christian, different Christian organizations allow people from a different perspective? I mean, try to get, even if you don't have the right theology, try to get on Sermon Audio. You've got to agree to their statement of faith. So if we, we, even our beliefs, we can't say what we want to say. There's churches everywhere. There's, now, listen, I do understand that the culture is becoming less friendly to the Christian message. And yes, there are times they will try to cancel you. Yes, there are times they will try to silence you. And yes, I think that's going to get worse and worse and worse, and it's going to become more and more difficult. I completely agree, and that should bother you. But let's think about how often Christians were trying to silence everybody else. Calling to boycott this. I remember when the, uh, not the Passion of the Christ, the Last Temptation of Christ, when that movie came out. trying to get into a movie theater here in West Texas, there were all these protesters standing in front of the movie theater. They wanted the movie theater not to show the movie. Well, what, what is that? What is that? Were you persecuting them? What was that? So it's just, 
I, I just find it, it just, it's just sometimes, it's just so weird. Everything he's talking about, this sounds more political than it does theological, biblical, or spiritual. Hey, we got to stand against this progressivism. What about the warning about the church not being hijacked and co-opted by the political right? So, so this, this, this is really is becoming more frustrating the longer I, I really thought this was going to be, oh, this is going to be really cool. They're going to really have some really good ideas and how to live in a post-Christian culture. This should be, this is not the St. Peter option. This is how to live as a Republican in a more liberal dominated society. That's what they should call this. Today, um, the effect of Darwinism, which is actually Darwin was an atheist and Darwinian evolution has had further effects today, not simply in uh, biology and so forth, but upon societal beliefs and man's self-appraisal of himself. And so Darwinism would certainly not confess anything, any notion of original sin and the corruption of man, but would actually promote the thesis that man is constantly progressing and getting better. Okay, now this one's a little bit more interesting. How should we handle Darwinianism? How should we, how should a Christian deal with a culture that has embraced Darwinian evolution, right? A materialistic evolution concept where there isn't a God and through these natural process over billions and billions of years, basically we go from matter to human beings, okay? Matter explodes, here we are. I know I'm over, over, over simplifying it. How do we handle that in culture? How do we handle that in culture? That's a good question. How, how should we handle it? What, what should we do? What should we do? I, I should just stop and have everyone send me uh, their own answers, but I'm just going to throw out a couple of things. You know what? It doesn't matter what the culture thinks. Here, here, here's my approach. If my kids were even homeschooled, and we still wanted them to know Darwinian evolution. I wanted them to know what it taught. I didn't want them to be ignorant of it. I wanted them to understand this is what's taught. Here is their perspective. Here is their theory. We believe that God created everything, but here is this theory. It's out there. It dominates the scientific world. So you're going to have to know it and you're going to have to understand it and you're going to have to pass tests about it because if you don't know it, when you get to college, you're going to be behind. You need to know this system and you understand it. And I don't think, I know I'm going to make some people mad, I don't think if your child goes to a public school and they have to write a paper or something on Darwinian evolution that they have to say, nope, I'm not going. I refuse to do it. I'm only going to write a paper that explains a six day, 24 hour creation. Just all you're there to do is to learn what they teach and pass the test. It's not there for you to try to indoctrinate or teach or evangelize the teacher and the papers you write. Your job is to demonstrate that you know what they have taught you, you understand it, and you can offer up a clear explanation of it, that you've grasped it. Now, if you have the opportunity to write a paper challenging Darwinian evolution, then do so not from a theological perspective, do so from a scientific perspective. Know the science so well, and not crazy scientific garbage that's thrown out by some creation websites that has no bear, no truth. And, and all the scientists in the world are like, what in the world are you talking about? Make sure it's actual 
well-researched, thought out, here are some possible scientific issues with Darwinian evolution. Write your paper on that. And just do so not from, hey, quoting Genesis, but saying here, here within the scientific community, here are some studies that demonstrate some possible problems with this theory. By all means, do that. You have every right to do that. But what would some are like, no, I'm, you know, I'm just going to write Genesis on my paper. Or I'm just going to, and it's just, no, you're in school. Just pass the test. For example, I'll give you an example. And I know that whenever I say this, Christians just think I'm absolutely crazy, but I, I just, I don't understand this. Like, oh, I'm going to make a point. What point are you making? You go to that school. That's what they taught. Pass the test, write the paper, read the books, Gain the knowledge. It doesn't mean that you are having to, it's not like, hey, do you believe in Darwinian evolution? If you don't, you cannot pass the class. Now, if, if that happens, that's different. Now they're, they're, they're challenging what you believe. You are to just demonstrate that you've mastered the material, the curriculum. You can pass the test. When I, I went to a Catholic university as a Baptist pastor, I enrolled in a Catholic university to pursue a degree in Catholic theology so that I could ensure that when I spoke on Catholicism, I could do so from a position of knowledge, not a position of ignorance. So I enjoyed my study, but guess what? I didn't write my papers trying to argue against Catholic theology. I tried to write the papers demonstrating that I understood Catholic theology and understood the perspective. Now, sometimes I was able to write papers to offer some questions and a a way that I think made sense and it fit what I was asked to do. And it was there not to try to, hey, I'm going to prove to this teacher. It's like, you're going to prove to your teacher all of a sudden that they're wrong and you're right. School is not about trying to prove the teacher is is wrong and you're right. It's about just making sure you've grasped the subject. Now, there are times and situations where you may have not the academic. It would make sense academically. It would make sense in in the paper. It would make sense in the discussion to raise a question or offer an objection. There is always a place in time. But some people want to do that. So I think the first thing is we don't try to go and fight it that way. Here's what we have to do. This is very important. We have to ensure that people understand that the belief in God creating the world, right, is a biblical doctrine. We believe it to be true, and we believe it to be true first and foremost because God's word declares it, right? And yes, maybe there's some scientific things that call it into question, but we believe it because God's word says it. So our job as Christians is to know, no, here's what God's word says. God created the heavens and the earth. We are not the product of time and chance. We are the product of a all-powerful, all-knowing, loving God who created us for his purpose and for his glory. We need to be reminded of that. And we don't approach the world like they approach the world from a godless philosophy, right? That there is no God. So there is no ultimate purpose. There is no ultimate meaning other than the one you create for yourself. Yes, we are to ensure that we have a biblical worldview based off the idea that that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We definitely need to instruct that. We need to have that. And we need to live our life being consistent with that biblical truth. Our job is to live it out and to understand it. But I think it's interesting. He criticizes Darwinian evolution as would be a philosophy that would reject 
the fall of man, the depravity of man, the, the sinfulness of man. Okay, now, yes, as Christians, we need to be aware that that system would give you a different understanding of man than the biblical one. But as, again, once again, it's the focus of what is the culture doing? How about Pelagianism? That has swept through so many churches, semi-Pelagianism or Pelagianism, which completely destroys the doctrine of total depravity and completely rejects it. What about that? Say, I'm more worried about what's in the church. The culture rejects God and therefore has an origin story that's different than the Bible. We need to know the origin story as taught by the world so that we understand it, pass the test, can advance academically, get the degree, but we always know that that's the system and we see the problems with that system because it contradicts the Bible. It leaves you with a meaningless, hopeless, basically no, no morality at all. Morality is what people create. Meaning is what people create. We, we can criticize that. We do so in our discipleship. But some Christians want to then try to fight. No, we want the public school to teach creation. Do you really? You really want the public school to teach creation? Really? So you got a teacher who's possibly unregenerate, ungodly. You want them to teach the biblical story of a creation. I I don't know if I want them teaching that. I want the church to teach it. I want Christians to be able to explain and articulate it. But we want to somehow fight. So, so this is the first one he's brought up that I think has a lot of issues and how Christians deal with it. And I know my approach will be, again, how should we, this is the kind of subject we should be talking about. How do we handle this in culture? How do we live in a culture that has rejected God as creator? Now, these raises some serious questions, and I think we have to think them through logically. So I'm glad he finally got to this one. I don't, you know, because I think it's an important one. Transgenderism, LGBTQ ideologies, the overall godlessness of our world today. If you look at contemporary culture, television, movies, and so forth, how little there is on display in the popular culture of Christians in a positive light. All right. Now, he brought up LGBT. LGBTQ, transgenderism. All right. I, I have to ask this question. This is important. And, and for you as a Christian, for you as a Christian, how negatively has LGBTQ movement or transgender, transgenderism impacted you spiritually? How, how has it negatively impacted you? Your church are you as a Christian? Now, I know I'm going to get, I know, look, I am not in any way, shape, or form saying that any sexuality that is opposed to biblical sexuality is correct. I'm, I'm I'm not in any way saying that it is correct. My question is, how much has it negatively impacted yours? Like the key is, how do I live in a world that embraces LGBTQ or transgenderism? How do I live in this world? Now, there are some issues with the transgenderism. I understand there are some issues. Let me just make this very clear. I, I've got to stress this because, because I, I, I'm trying to throw out what I believe is a biblical option to these issues. For me, I'm just going to state this for me. I know most of you are getting ready to disagree with me, but that's okay. For me, LGBTQ transgenderism has had little 
to no effect upon my Christian life. Zero. None. Here's my view. The world who rejects God, obviously, is going to reject God's word when it comes to sexuality. Let me, let me go back to a period of time where it wasn't LGBTQ. I'm going to go back at least to the area where I currently live, right? Back when I was a teenager, yes, I knew, uh, I knew two females who were, uh, who were lesbians, who I went to high school with, right? One of them I had a crush on and asked out, and, and, and we became kind of friends, but you found out that obviously she, she wasn't in, into guys, all right? She wasn't into boys, okay? So, uh, so I, I, it was, it, I'm not saying it wasn't present. It was present, but it wasn't such a big issue, right? So I know this, that in my spiritual life, as a, as a, as a, I'll just go back as a teenager, my issue wasn't LGBTQ, now, transgenderism wasn't much of a, a thing at that point, but all, but any of the students in my school who were lesbian, gay, whatever, whatever they classified themselves to be, it had no impact on me spiritually. None, zero, no impact. You know where I had my problems? Wasn't with LGBTQ. It was with my own heterosexual desires and lust. That's where I had my problems. Oh yeah, now we're going to get very real. Now, now we're going to get very real. My issue wasn't the gay students. My issue wasn't homosexuals. My issue wasn't what's going on in the gay bar in, 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 in Abilene at the time or the gay club. At, at, it, it, none of that really had any impact on me whatsoever. I wasn't tempted by it, wasn't drawn to it, wasn't confused by it. I'm like, I have no desire for that. No problem with that. My issue is, whoa, look at her. Okay, oh, wait, wait, I can't think that way. Oh, wait. Wait, oh wait, I'm in, a, uh, I'm in a dating relationship. Whoa, I would like to have physical relationships. Wait, ooh, ooh, this movie has a scene in it. Whoa, boy, that's causing some problems. That's where I was struggling. It wasn't, the, it wasn't the homosexuality. It was my own heterosexuality. That's where my issues were. So, so when it comes to homosexuality, how has it impacted you, you spiritually? Now, if you're drawn to that, if you're if you're tempted with that, then yes, its presence everywhere can be very tempting. But let me make it very clear. If you're a heterosexual, you got just as much or more temptations all around you. So so again, how how what's my approach to this? Like I live in a culture. You know what? Here's my culture. Here's someone who's a homosexual. Here's someone lesbian, bi, trans, what whatever whatever labeled letter they want to give themselves. To me, it's irrelevant. My issue is not to convince them of my job is not to try to win some debate about LGBTQ or about transgenderism. I'm not there to try to change their minds about their sexuality or I'm not there to change my mind about that. My approach to them is they need Christ. Now, yes, their, their sexuality is a sin, just like when I meet, look, when I meet someone who's a heterosexual and they need, here, I, don't, I don't start my evangelism with a heterosexual going, okay, here's the situation, all right? Well, I need to know about your sexuality. I need to know your sexual preferences. I, 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 I don't need to know anything about their sexuality. I need to know, they need to understand that they are a sinner far, far removed from their sexual sin. They got a million other sins, selfishness, all the pride, arrogance, all the other issues, right? They've rejected God. They've not submitted to, uh, all the other sins. I don't even need to get into their sexual 
different preferences or anything about their sexual daily activity. I don't need to get into any of that. I know that they're a sinner. They need to understand that they're a sinner and that they need to put their faith in the only solution for their sin, which is the finished work of Jesus Christ. They need to change their mind about their sin and about God. And they need to put their faith in Jesus Christ. Sometimes we approach homosexuals or or anybody in the LGBTQ movement like, okay, we've got to change their minds about that. No, we need to bring them to faith in Christ and then disciple them about the biblical model of sexuality and then calling them to, to abstain and to live a life that's in accordance with Christianity when it comes to sexuality. And you say, but no, I have to address that first. Why? So do you address a, a, a heterosexual going, hey, hey guys, before, before you get saved, we need to talk about your sexual pre- preferences and practices because you need to realize that there's going to be a massive change that takes place when you become a Christian. No, we, we don't go into all of that detail. So it's like the Christian world, in many cases, the way we want to handle the LGBTQ world is we, this is really what we want. We want all the, all the lesbians, uh, gay, bisexual, we want all of them to change their sexuality so that the world doesn't have that in it anymore. It's like, so we just, we don't really care about their salvation. We just don't want them to practice a lifestyle that we find disturbing, disgusting, and we don't like, we don't like. Well, that's not the way the Christian approach is. I don't, who care? They live that way. Yes, I believe it's sinful, but they need salvation. They don't need to reform their sexual lifestyle. They need salvation and then through salvation, discipleship, and then learning to live out their Christian life no matter what their sexual preferences may be, and then trying to submit their life now to a biblical lifestyle that the Bible lays out in regards to sexuality. Same thing with transgender. If I meet someone who's transgender, I could argue and argue about, well, wait a minute, biologically, you're this. Wait a minute. We could get into a whole discussion about that. But once again, first and foremost, they need salvation more than they need anything else. And it's like sometimes I think Christians just want to win a culture war and win a debate. So my approach is to show love, show mercy, show grace. Don't compromise my belief about what's sinful. Call them to faith in Jesus Christ. And then if they say, well, I have believed in Jesus Christ. Well, now let's talk about your actions. Let's talk about your life. Let's let's struggle with it because we're going to have to work on it. Just like you have to work with that 16-year-old, 17-year-old guy who's a heterosexual who's struggling with all kinds of sexual issues in his life, whether it's pornography or whatever else, his relationship with his girlfriend or whatever the case may be. It's just weird the way we approach it's like we're, we want to win a cultural battle, and I don't think that's the way it approaches. So, so the, the, now these are issues that we have to deal with. The, so evolution, how do we deal with it? The LGBTQ, now some of these are more political issues. Now these are, have very strong theological and biblical implications. I know we're already over an hour. Let me see if we can uh, get a, a good stopping point here. Any kind of goodness that you see on display in television or movies is a goodness apart from the existence of God or its anchor in the objectivity of God who is a creator and a savior. You don't have depictions of people going to church, or if they do, they're always radical or strange people suffering from mental illness. 
atheism is on the rise in our in our world today. Uh, there's a loss of absolute truth. And so we could go on and on, you know, just listing out contemporary challenges, but it becomes depressing for us as Christians. How, how, do, we, how do we engage in, in a world that hits us on all sides with challenges to our faith? And we're not going to be able to be, nor are people going to be able to be experts in all of these things, this litany of things that I just went through. So we need to be experts at Christ, at the gospel. We need to immerse ourselves into the promises of God. The common denominator in these challenges to Christianity is that Christianity and the God of the Bible must be destroyed. And, and I think we need to understand that and not react to it with equal venom and uh, vitriolic spirit, which is meted out against us. That's our natural tendency. That certainly is of the flesh. But to counter that in the way that Jesus did. For the world around us, Christianity is an impediment to the advancement of mankind. We need to counter that and show that what Christianity offers is a better way, that the gospel is a better way, and that the gospel permeates our understanding of every way in which we live and the positive things that we have to offer to the world. The underlying spiritual problems of all of these things that I went through are as old as the fall into sin itself. You know, the fall into sin was man turning away from God's good word that was the source of life to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God had not given them to eat. And they did so believing Satan's lie that God was withholding something good, that if they would only eat of this, then they would get what God was withholding from them, which was really good. Now, that was a lie. They were already made in the image and likeness of God. But they believed the lie, and they plunged themselves and all of humanity and the world into sin. So this underlying spiritual problem of turning away from God's word and what Adam and Eve lost, what they let go of, was the idea that what God had created and what God had given was really good. It was a rejection of what God had ordered as good in favor of the disorder and the self-centeredness and the lovelessness that would flow from a rejection of God as both creator and redeemer. And, you know, the, the more uh, we've been experiencing the challenges over the COVID-19 uh, months and with the rise of all of these leftist ideologies, the more I've been drawn to see in the scriptures and in the church's liturgy the linking together of our Lord and God as both creator and redeemer. Creator and redeemer. And that's significant because what Adam and Eve turned away from in the garden in God's good creation was really the better way that we still have to offer to the world. And what Christ has redeemed is the created order what it is to be a man and a woman and a husband and a wife and marriage and family and so forth. And the identity and the significance of all of this is anchored in Christ, our creator and redeemer. Pastor Peter Bender of the Concordia Catechism. All right. Now, a lot of good things uh, that we could talk about there. There's some good to that. I think, once again, he mentioned leftist ideologies, ignoring the right conservative 
I, again, I just, it's just so crazy to me that the church is like, the leftists, the leftists, the leftists, the leftists, the leftists. And if you want to restore that created order to people, let me make it very clear. We don't restore the created order by winning a culture war and, and forcing the quote-unquote created order upon unregenerate hearts. You have to bring, they, they have to be brought to Christ by by faith being brought to Christ, trusting in him. And then after they've trusted in him, then you demonstrate that creative order as outlined in scripture. And then they are called to live and follow that created order as Christians. It's not we force the created order on the unregenerate. The created order is for Christians to live out and the world sees the created order lived out. So I, I just I have to stress that, but I will stop with this. If you go to theologycentral.net and go to the blog section, theologycentral.net, go to the blog section, you'll have to go down a couple of posts. You're going to see one called Christians Living in the World. Christians Living in the World. And what I have here, I have posted one of the earliest pieces of Christian apologetic writings. We're not sure of the author. It's probably written sometime in the 100s, 100 AD, somewhere in the 100s. Um, And... It's one of the earliest pieces of Christian apologetic writings, and it shows how Christians are to live in the world. I want you to read it for yourself. I was going to read it to you, but we're already over an hour. Read it for yourself and just look at that. How does this compare to how Christians try to live today in the world? All right. And, and, and we'll, we'll have to come back to this. I know we talked about a lot of different issues. Feel free to email me all of your disagreements. I know they will be many. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. But go to theologycentral.net. Christians living in the world. Um, it's one of the earliest pieces of Christian apologetic writings, somewhere in the 100s, 100s AD. And, uh, just just read it and it's just one paragraph fr- from it there's a link there to the to the uh the full epistle you can read all of it but at least read that paragraph and just go wait this is how the early christians thought they were to live in the world how does that fit the way you think about living in the world and not just you your church and the christians you know all right we'll stop there i wish i wish i could do bring this to a better conclusion but hopefully we, we talked about enough important issues there that may spark, hopefully, a broader conversation. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. I should be back on the air here shortly. God bless.